You're listening to Vernacular Podcast. Hello and welcome to Vernacular Podcast. I'm Zach. And I'm Sally. And this episode is going to be a little bit different today because this is a special episode in light of July 4th and we're interviewing Dick Carroll who's a World War II veteran who spent a lot of time overseas and was actually a prisoner of war for quite some time. Yeah, he has an amazing story. So we won't be having our typical segments. We'll just be airing our interview with him. But we couldn't resist giving you a tip of the week. So your hashtag tip of the week for this week involves s'mores. When Sally was growing up, she was responsible for what her family called Sally's S'more Factory. Yes, it was just their way of indulging my need for organization of even s'more making. And I would hold on to the graham crackers and the marshmallows and the chocolate and people would get their marshmallows from me and then they would bring back their marshmallow to me and I would have their graham cracker and chocolate all ready to go and then I would smush it around their marshmallow and hand it to them. But so that was Sally's S'more Factory. That was Sally's S'more Factory, but Sally has actually become quite an expert on s'mores, and we have a lot of ideas for you on how to make your s'mores different this July 4th. Yeah, so my favorite... And this, and this is, of course, not to trivialize the what July 4th actually celebrates. This is just to recognize that a lot of us celebrate July 4th with each other, and we do outdoor cookouts and grill sessions and all this, and a lot of times there are s'mores involved, so... And actually, we are having s'mores this weekend. We are. That's, yeah, one of our planned delicacies. So Sally's S'more Factory is back in business. Sally's S'more Factory <laughs> is back in business this week. But yeah, some of our tips include, so I'm a peanut butter addict, and putting peanut butter on your graham cracker before you put on the chocolate, before you smush it around the marshmallow, is just delightful. So I suggest that. I don't condone the peanut butter choice per our previous discussion with Danny in episode one, but uh, I do support using dark chocolate in your s'mores instead of Hershey's milk chocolate. Yeah. Up the ante with your type of chocolate that you use. I mean, that could really mean anything. You could get some really fancy dark chocolate with almonds in it or something or white you could, chocolate. You could get a Milky Way bar with the caramel and Ooh. nougat in it. Wow. No, did I pronounce that correctly? Nougat? It's such nougat? a weird word. Yeah, I think so. Okay. Yeah. Um, also I remember as a child, we didn't, I haven't done this in a long, long time, but we had s'mores with this one family who showed us that they, we could just open up an Oreo and then put your marshmallow between the Oreo. So that would be really good. That's pretty impressive. You could even put peanut butter and the marshmallow in between the Oreo. You could, if you really (laughs) like peanut butter. Another option, you could deep fry your s'more. You could make a normal s'more. Cover it in batter, stick it in the deep fryer. That sounds gross. But you could do that. You could do that. <laughs> um, you could get chocolate chip cookies instead of graham crackers. That would be good. And put your marshmallow between those. You could, I don't know, what else could you do? Maybe you should write in with some ideas of what else you could do to your s'mores to make them even better. Yeah, or just uh, try some of these experiments or some of your own and then let us know after the fact how your s'more experiments went. You can make your own marshmallows and your own graham crackers. That would be pretty cool, actually. That would be crazy. Completely homemade s'mores. Yeah. You can make your own chocolate. Ooh, wow. <laughs> that would be amazing. That's the next level. If you make your own chocolate, let us know. Yeah, definitely. So those that is our tip of the week. How to make your s'mores even more s'more-tastic. This is straight from Sally's S'more Factory. All right, next up is our interview with Dick Carroll. 
So, Dick, what unit were you in in World War II? 459th Heavy Bomb Group, 15th Air Force in Italy. What type of bombers did the 459th Heavy Bomb Group fly? All B-24s. B-24s. Is that the Liberator? Yep. What was was your position on the plane? I was the co-pilot. So did you know you wanted to be a bomber pilot, or did you just end up being one because they wanted the bomber pilots more than... I wanted badly to be a P-38 pilot. I thought that plane that I'd love to fly. But that wasn't uh, what was needed at the time, and... uh, so we became bomber pilots, yep. So you graduated in January 1944. When did you ship off to right. Italy? We shipped off uh, in uh, uh, early May, and we flew our new B-24 that was delivered by WASP aircraft, uh, pilots, women pilots. We picked it up at Topeka, Kansas, and we flew it over to Italy by way of South South America. As soon as we landed in Italy, they told us that the 459th didn't need another aircraft. They only wanted the crew to replace the crew that had bailed out two days before. Oh, wow. So, as, as usual, the new air crews always got the oldest aircraft to fly. So we lasted for 15 missions, and finally on the 15th mission, uh, flying to Budapest, we had to bail out because we could not get the number one engine uh, feathered. So we had no choice but to evacuate the airplane. So you flew 14 bomber missions from Italy, and then on your 15th one, you had to bail out over Hungary? Right, right. Mm-hmm. About forty kilometers south of Budapest, on the east side of the Danube. Uh, my my missions, uh, the first five missions, they uh, divided our crew up. Each each uh, individual flew uh, separately with some other air crew, so that all. Uh, ten of our air crew had to fly individually with uh, other uh, 459th air crew until we had five missions completed, and then we then flew together as a air crew. Was it with that crew that you had to bail out over Hungary? Oh, yes. Yeah, our regular crew. After our five missions, uh, we always flew as our regular crew. However, our bombardier was uh, quite well known for his ability to drop the bombs properly because he had gotten a, a um, what we call a shack uh, on practice bombing back at uh, uh, Denver, Colorado, uh, where we had a a field to practice uh, dropping bombs. Uh, Practice, there were 150-pound bombs filled with flour, 
and the shack uh, that we were aiming at was six foot square and uh, Smokey, our bombardier, got a shack on his second mission at that day. That's a pretty good shot. Uh, and that was uh, about as rare as uh, a hole-in-one in golf, you know. So he was well-known for his accuracy. So how did you get uh, back to your base after you bailed out in Hungary? We didn't. <laughs> uh, after we landed, within a minute after I landed in my parachute, uh, I ducked it. As well, as well as I could, because there were a group of about 30 farmers that were carrying uh, hoes, shovels, uh, rakes, pieces of lumber, and some were carrying rifles that were uh, farmers that were out to pick us up. And they also brought along a two-wheel cart that they threw the uh, parachutes into. As they got nearer to me, they were shouting at us uh, in what they thought was English, but of course it was with the Hungarian accent. I stopped walking and uh, put my hands on top of my head to show that I wasn't armed. Nevertheless, I was shot. The bullet went through my right lung and the lower part, bounced off of a rib on the front, and uh, ricocheted back into the lower part of my heart, the muscular part on the lower part of the heart. And, uh, of course, I managed to continue standing until two Hungarian farmers came up and held me up by my elbows. And um, then another farmer, about five foot five or six, came up with a long-handled shovel and glared at me for a half a minute or so walked around behind me and I knew what was coming but I didn't know that he was but he finally did hit me in the back of the head with the base of his shovel and I always recall I could hear the noise of the impact it sounded like when Harmon Killebrew playing for our Twins baseball team at the old Metro Stadium, outdoor stadium. Uh, it was a solid smack that that rang and rang. Uh, so I I went unconscious, and I don't know how long I was unconscious, but it was for quite a while because. Uh, other crew members reported that I was loaded on top of the open chair parachutes on the cart. Finally, when the home guard came with a flatbed small truck and loaded all of our 
crew that remained uh, onto the truck and drove to a nearby farming village. And a doctor came with his black bag and stethoscope, and he said, you are a very sick man. Your temperature is 104.7, and your heart rate is over-speeding at over 100 beats per minute. And he says, do you have any last wishes? Did you think you were going to die at that point? Yes, because a second doctor for that farming village came to see me, and he had the same report I had had that fever of 104.7 and a very rapid heartbeat. I was almost gasping for air and they gave me a drink of water which helped a great deal. And then uh, the doctor said that uh, I'd have to stay there in bed but uh, he said he expected me to die before before that evening. And um, so, what was going through your head at that point? Well, I thought back of how my aged parents were feeling if if they knew that I had been shot and and uh, forecast to die. Both doctors said that. They didn't even have an aspirin tablet to give me. That was the that was the only pill for pain that existed in World War II, according to the Germans and the Russians. Uh, that had that had apparently been uh, the only source of painkiller was the Alka Seltzer. Wow. That's amazing. The the doctor at at the military headquarters town uh, told the soldiers uh, how to treat me to try to break my fever was to pump well water outside my window and bring in this big tub of water and soak a bed sheet and wring it out and then fold it up so to wrap it around my chest with a great big safety pin to hold it all together. And they did this night and day every 15 minutes of the hour. That shock would cause me to pass out. And so when I came to, it just felt wonderful to be that cool. But then by the time of the 15-minute interval, then steam was coming back out of uh, under from under the uh, pillow or the sheet that they had wrapped around me. So I was sort of happy to get a refreshing cooler again. Yeah, that went on day and night for five days, and finally at the end of the fifth day, that was a Friday, we went down on July second, and then. Five days later, uh, on the 7th, in the afternoon, my fever broke down to 102.3. And 
I felt much better, but I was still very weak. All that time for the five days, I couldn't raise up. Uh, they had to pull me up to a, a sitting position to wrap me uh, and then lay me back, back down again. Uh, I had only water to drink. I couldn't eat anything. I didn't wasn't even able to chew any food. I was so weak. Uh, but I, when they offered me, uh, when the second offer of uh, wine, if I want to die happy, uh, I said I was a dairy farmer and I'd prefer to have a glass of milk. So each evening they gave me a somewhat chilled glass of milk, probably just with well water cooling. And then they also gave me another glass later in the evening of uh, uh, chicken broth that was lukewarm. That was the only food that I had for the five days. So how did you eventually get back to American forces? They put me on a train to take me to Budapest, which was about 60 kilometers north of where we were. Every so often I had to put my head between my knees because I would be starting to pass out. So then when we got into the station on on the east side of the Danube, our hospital was on the west side of the Danube. We had to uh, get on to an ambulance and then drive over the bridge to get to the hospital. But I couldn't walk hardly at all. And of course, when we got to the steps to get stepped down off the train, I had to get down on my hands and knees because I couldn't use the steps. And then trying to get back up again was quite a job. But then we had three railroad tracks to cross, which meant I had to step over six rails. And each time I got to the rail, I had to get down on my hands and knees. I couldn't raise my feet that high. Uh, so I really crossed all three, all six rails on my hands and knees and then got up. Finally, the man that was standing next to the back of the, the uh, ambulance ran over to me and grabbed me and dragged me because I couldn't walk at all. And the, finally the ambulance drove off and we went to a Catholic church, St. Stephen's, that's uh, their state saint that they had adapted. This was the name of the hospital. And of course, being a Catholic, I thought, why are they taking me to a civilian hospital? I, they, can't, uh, they can't register me here. And of course, it would do no good to talk to the uh, ambulance driver or the attendant 
because they only spoke Hungarian. So again, to get up onto the curb, I had to get down on my hands and knees and then use the ambulance to crawl back up to stand up and walk up to the hospital, which of course had three steps to get into the main entrance. So again, I had to get down on hands and knees and crawl up the steps and finally get into the hospital. But there was no doctor on the first floor. And the only way to get to the second floor was a a very wide staircase with at least 20 steps in it because the first floor had a high ceiling. I could only make one step at a time. I'd, I'd almost passed out. I'd have to put my head against the wood, which was cooler, which helped me. And it took me a long, long time to get up the 20-some steps. Uh, finally, I lay on the floor on the second level, and the, the uh, guard went and he brought back with him two doctors. And, of course, again, the doctors with their advanced education, uh, both doctors spoke good English. And they said, they told me that I was very sick and that uh, I couldn't be put in this hospital. But don't, not to worry, they would get me to a military hospital. So they picked me up, the two of them picked me up and carried me down these steps and out to the car and started off to drive me straight north to the hospital. They finally got me to the hospital and and, uh, the doctor came down with uh, two POWs with a a, uh, litter to carry me up to the second floor. And the doctor examined me and He said my temperature was 104.7 again. It must have been my limit. Yeah, it seems like it. Thank goodness it didn't get up into the 105s because then you can have brain trouble, you know. Right. But anyhow, uh, he said I was not to put my feet on the floor, that I was to stay in bed and uh, nurses would take care. And of course, the nurses that were there, all except one, didn't speak English, of course. So there was really not too much communication done. But uh, one of the night nurses was a uh, veteran of the Hungarian army. And uh, she was a very kind and uh, thoughtful nurse. She took awfully good care of me. That was a a blessing for me. We had uh, at at least 30 POWs, and there was a second room with another 20, uh, and all had bailed out of their aircraft were 
some were severely burnt, some others had major bone fractures, some had to be operated on to lose a limb or an arm because uh, in landing uh, or with getting out of the airplane, breaking their bones. And the worst cases were mostly severe burns, much of their body. Uh, so there were people that were worse off than I was, and uh, I finally ended up, first of all, deciding that I would not be able to get married because uh, I wouldn't be able to afford to um, get married, even though I was engaged to be married because I could no longer be a dairy farmer that worked with much too hard for a guy with a bullet in his heart. And I couldn't be, I couldn't stay in the Army Air Corps because they told me when we got back home that obviously that I could no longer be a pilot with a bullet lost in my heart. So was the bullet still lodged in your heart, or did they remove it? Yeah, yeah. It's still there today. And, of course, as I'm talking to you, each beat of my heart, the bullet meets up, you know, the lower part of the heart. It pushes the blood out of the heart to the body, and then it relaxes and goes back down. So it's a well-traveled bullet. It moves up and down an inch and a half with each beat of my heart. Did you leave the Army Air Corps when you got back? Yes, they not only I not only left, but they retired me for combat disability. So I was retired as a first lieutenant with three years of duty. So uh, that uh, at that time was. Uh, paid more than uh, 50% disability. So I was getting more money than I would get if I was 50% disabled. Wow. Yeah. And were you ever able to be a dairy farmer again? I gave that up because uh, I, when I got back home, I tried to do some of the work and I had to give up. What did you do instead? Instead, well, I... I, I knew uh, two pilots that were uh, not original pilots, but they were uh, older than I and had been flying for Northwest for a number of years. And they lived on a farm near uh, our farm in near Rosemount, Minnesota. And uh, they said that the there would be no use trying to fly because uh, the physical exam and the mental exam is a two-day process, and they said they take x-rays and do everything to check out. You have to be a pretty uh, complete person to qualify. So I didn't even try to become a pilot. I, it would be a waste of time. So, fortunately, uh, when 
the Department of Labor found out that I had a bullet lodged in my heart, they insisted that I go and see Mr. Hibbert, who was the head of the VA hospital and the regional office of the VA at Minneapolis. And he said that uh, I was just the candidate that he wanted to help veterans that were uh, wounded in World War II to help them navigate uh, the system to get them back to health again and to get them employed in a job that they're qualified to do. So that was my start working for Uncle Sam as a civilian. So did you marry your fiancé after all? Yes, I did. She insisted that we get married, period. Yeah. That's good. Yeah, yeah. She said uh, she had invested so much prayer during my time as a POW that she she just deserved to be married to me. Who was I to argue? Yeah, seriously. I think you made the right decision there. So I ended up working for Uncle Sam for 30 years, including my wartime. And uh, the last 18 years, I was the exec officer of the 934th Airlift Wing at Minneapolis at the airport. So I was back with the with the Air Force uh, for quite a while. Made much of my career. Well, that's great. I'm glad you were able to do that. Yeah. So I've been retired now longer than I than I worked for Uncle Sam, and I'm still alive at age 94 with this bullet lodged in my heart. Yeah, it seems like that bullet hasn't slowed you down at all. No, no. Still still operating. I'm so fortunate to be alive. I have no complaints. And we live in a great community where people care for one another. We have neighbors that stop in and make sure that everything is okay. And... uh, it's wonderful to still be alive. What a pleasure. I thank, thank you for being patient to talking with an old geezer. Oh, you're not an old geezer, Dick. I enjoyed talking to you. Thank you for making the time to talk to us. Your story is amazing and really inspiring, and I'm excited to share it with other people yeah. um, because I think there's a lot to learn from it. Yeah. You faced a lot of adversity in what you did. Uh, even just going to war in the first place to fight for your country takes a lot of guts. And uh, and the, the the struggles that you put up with while you were in Europe and while you were a POW are really amazing. Uh, I think of you often and often say a prayer. God bless you and your family. You too, Dick. Thank you so much for talking to us. Bye now. Man, what an amazing story and an amazing man. Yeah, I couldn't believe it when he was suddenly talking about 
the plane going down and them having to bail out all of a sudden. Yeah, that was crazy. I think the craziest part for me was him relaying the story about how the doctor asked him if he had any last wishes. Yeah, and thinking, I'm going to die soon. Right. I don't know what I would do in that situation. That was crazy. And then I also think it was really neat how he talked about people along the way who made a difference, like the doctor who asked him that, who took care of him, or the nurse in Budapest, who he said was very gentle and caring. You know, people who played a pivotal role in his recovery, and who knows where Dick would be if it weren't for the careful attention of those good Samaritans along the way. So. Yeah, and just by showing him kindness and treating him with dignity. Well, I don't know if Dick will be listening to this final version of our podcast, but um, Dick, if you are listening, thank you so much for talking to us. And thank you also for the sacrifice that you made by going overseas and fighting for this country and stopping the Third Reich and the Axis. Uh, by extension, we also want to thank all of our veterans who have done the same, not necessarily in World War II, but potentially in other wars. People who have gone out there, men and women, laid their lives on the line, some of whom have given the ultimate sacrifice. Thank you so much for doing all of that. Well, we'll wrap up this special topic episode here. Please let us know what you thought of this episode. Reach out to Zach and Sally at vernacularpodcast.com. And visit our website. You can fill out our questionnaire if you'd like to be on a future episode of Vernacular Podcast. And also on our website, you'll see a link to find us on iTunes or Stitcher. If you're listening to a platform like Android, you can get the Stitcher app and listen to us there. Also on our website, you'll see the episodes and blog pages where you can listen to all our episodes or read the blogs that accompany them. You can also follow us on Twitter at VernacularPod. Or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash VernacularPodcast. And we hope everyone has a safe and fun 4th of July. We will be back next week with our regularly scheduled programming. All right. For Vernacular Podcast, I'm Zach. And I'm Sally. Have a great week. Bye.